I'm not polyamorous and never have been, which is really awkward when I, you know, meet polyamorous and they say, oh, you know, you wrote the Bible of polyamory. I was like, did I? <laughs> Didn't mean to. My name is Abby and I'm the voice behind the Evolving Love Project. In this podcast, my husband and I deep dive into the topics of non-monogamy and polyamory, drawing from our experiences of being consensually non-monogamous for almost a decade. My name is Liam. Whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, curious or anything in between, we invite you to join us for this conversation. Let's begin. Well, in Australia, it is currently Valentine's Day and uh, some people for Valentine's Day take their partner out to a nice dinner over candlelight, get a few chocolates, maybe bring a rose or two. Uh, But we are doing our Valentine's Day a little bit differently today and we are talking with the incredible, the incomparable Dr. Christopher Ryan. He is the author of Sex at Dawn and Civilized to Death, and he has his own amazing podcast called Tangentially Speaking. Mm. And we just had the most amazing conversation. Yeah, it was really wide ranging. He brings such a beautiful sense of openness uh, to the way that he not only discusses uh, the book, of course, Sex at Dawn, which is what we spend a lot of time talking about, but we also diverge from that. And he has a real sense of uh, of just the love of life. It really kind of emanates from him, uh, like the core of his very being, and also just an interest in in having conversations and hearing different perspectives. We spoke about psychedelics. We spoke about sex at dawn, non-monogamy, the future of relationships, mm. technology, AI, Apple Vision Pro. It was oh. so fascinating. So for those of you not familiar with Dr. Christopher Ryan's work, we're going to read to you his incredible biography. So Ryan's work has been translated into over 20 languages and appeared just about everywhere, including Netflix, HBO, MSNBC, Fox News, CNN, NPR, The New York Times, The Times of London, Playboy, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, uh, etc., etc. Chris has been a featured speaker at TED, South by Southwest, the Festival of Dangerous Ideas at our very own Sydney Opera House, the Portland Comedy Festival, the Einstein Forum in Potsdam, and is a frequent guest on the Joe Rogan Experience, the Duncan Trussell Family Hour, and many other podcasts. He has provided expert testimony in a Canadian constitutional hearing, won a coveted AVN Award, Best Non-Sex Performance, Marriage 2.0, and popped up in dozens of documentary films and television shows. Dr. Christopher Ryan is the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Sex at Dawn, how we mate, why we stray, and what it means for modern relationships. Chris's latest book, Civilized to Death, The Price of Progress, asks whether civilization has been a net benefit to our species. Jack Dorsey, co-founder and ex-CEO of Twitter, wrote, It is incredible, timely, and clarifying. He hosts a weekly podcast, Tangentially Speaking, often recorded from the road while travelling in his van, Scarlett Jovanson. The podcast features conversations with comics, bank robbers, drug smugglers, porn stars, authors, and the occasional rattlesnake expert. And with that, we bring to you Dr. Christopher Ryan. Thank you so much for joining us today. Chris, we're so excited to talk with you. Really been looking forward to this conversation. And it just happens to be Valentine's Day here in Australia. It is. So So what a Valentine's Day (laughs) to share it with you. Yeah, Valentine's Day. I don't know how it's celebrated in Australia, but in the States when you're a kid, in school it's a big celebration and you make these cards um that say things like i remember 
be mine was the card you would oh, give to a girl. Man. Be mine. Like, wow, talk about indoctrination, huh? Mm. There's monogamy in full flight, just like, <laughs> you know, just seeping it into the children one <laughs> one Valentine's Day at a time. Yeah, right. Be my one and only. You were just sharing with us that it's also your birthday. So we'd like to wish you a happy birthday, happy from, birthday. A, from Australia as well. Thank you. Thank you. My birthday isn't actually on Valentine's Day. So this is a international dateline anomaly that's happening here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's my birthday here, but it's not my birthday there. So, yeah. So, Chris, I first learned about you back in 2012 when Liam and I had only just gotten together and we were in a monogamous relationship, falling in love, very much at the be mine stage. And a friend of mine lent me a copy of Sex at Dawn and she was beaming and she was so excited to share this book with me. And I remember her telling me that you were going to be coming to Sydney at some point for the Festival of Dangerous Ideas at the Sydney Opera House. And I was holding the book and I remember thinking, gosh, this does feel dangerous. Like this does feel like something pretty powerful in my hands. And it's it's really funny when I think back to it now, uh, I actually read the first two chapters of the book, but because Liam and I were in the throes of our monogamy and falling in love, I actually found it quite confronting. So I stopped reading it, even though it was so um, fascinating and, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, argue anything that I was reading at the time, but I just remembered feeling that those like waves of like, what does this mean? This is so, um, it's so interesting. And I actually gave the book back to my friend and I said, look, I'm going to read it at some point, but I'm just not at that point <laughs> at the moment. And it was really funny because I think it must have been only about six months after that point that mm. we began exploring non-monogamy. And I, I don't think we came back to the book until a few years later after listening to uh, Dan Savage. And it was just really interesting because, you know, coming back to it a few years later, I found it incredibly validating then. And it was just such a moment of, you know, how we receive things at different points in time and how it, how the book landed on me at these different stages in my life. And um, yeah, it's just, it's an incredible book. And have you found that, that lots of people would try and get into Sex at Dawn and they'll have this initial intense reaction where they go, oh, this is, this is way outside of my comfort zone. And then they return to that years later. Well, I, I definitely have seen the first part where where people just sort of have a visceral reaction against it um, without even reading it, right? Just having an idea of what they think it's about. I remember when the book first came out, uh, there were some, you know, a bunch of reviews. And one of the reviews was by a quite famous uh, American writer named Megan McArdle. And I think she was writing maybe in the Washington Post or a big newspaper. And she said in her comments, she said, you know, she, she, she was very dismissive and, you know, it's poorly written and the poorly researched and, you know, just really bad, bad, bad. And she said, uh, and how can you write a whole book about non-monogamy without even mentioning the word jealousy? And I'm like, <laughs> lady, chapter 10 is called jealousy. It's, you know, it's like, wow. you didn't even look at the mm. table of contents, you know? Um, but even before the book came out, it was, it was really interesting how, like the, the whole process of publishing, um, you know, because initially there was all this buzz around it and 
all these agents were like, yeah, this is great. You're, you know, we're going to, this is going to really sell. And you could just see the dollar signs in their eyes, you know, like a cartoon. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, we went through all this stuff and um, like all these weird conversations where, you know, where people were saying things like, you know, are you ready for the blowback you're going to get? Are you ready for, you know, <laughs> people are going to attack you and the Christian right is going to come after you. And, and it was like, what, a, what am I getting into here? This is really intense. Um, and one, uh, one publisher, I, I spoke on the phone with the acquisitions editor. This is a big publisher. And, you know, he was super excited. This was on a Friday, I think. And he was like, uh, I, I'm totally into this. I'm so excited. This is exactly the kind of book I, I want to work on. You know, it's going to like mm. challenge the paradigm and make people think and have an emotional impact. I can't wait to work on this with you. I'm going to call your agent Monday morning and we're going to make an offer, uh, you know, and I'm going to do everything I can to get this because there was an auction. There were like different publishers who all wanted mm. to do it. Right. And he never called. He never called. He never called. So I, my agent's like, what the hell? So he calls this guy. I think he had lunch with him because he knew him. And the guy said, listen, I've been working at this publisher for 30 years. This has never happened to me. If I want a book, I make a bid totally in my call. He said, I mentioned this book at a mm. meeting Friday afternoon. And the head of the company said, we're not publishing a book about non-monogamy. Case closed. Wow. Forget it. Whoa. And he was like, I, I, I'm so embarrassed. This has never happened before. And it turned out the head of the company, like her husband had cheated on her. And so she was just mm. like, uh-uh, we're not having this, you know, because people think the book is like, hey, do what you want, right? Cheat on your partner. It doesn't matter. Mm. Like people get all these weird, I think people project onto anything, whether it's a film or, or you know, other people's mm -hmm. private relationship. I mean, I'm sure you guys get that all the time, right? People assume mm -hmm. they know what's going on. Um, mm -hmm. But I think a book about sexuality, that process is even more kind of passionate and out of control. So, so yeah, mm -hmm. I've seen the full spectrum, every, you know, from the most complimentary, beautiful. I remember one of the first emails that we got uh, after the book came out, it was very simple. I'll never forget it. It said, I'm a 68-year-old woman. This is the most important book I've ever read. I wish I could mm -hmm. live my life over. Oh, that wow. was it. Three sentences. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Yeah. So it's it's been interesting. Yeah. Well, the, the generational response. Like, I wonder whether people who are first encountering your book, as we did when we were kind of 25 years old, we have our whole life ahead of us. And it almost forms as like this beautiful confirmation bias. Like we were already in this kind of non-monogamous mindset, but we felt like, oh, this book really speaks to us. But if you are encountering the book at, towards the end of your life, you're almost thinking, I could have, my whole life could have been set up completely differently if only I'd been exposed, you know, to the books that these people in ivory towers and publishing houses are saying, no, this is, you know, you're not allowed to publish this one. It's too dangerous. Yeah, it's very subversive, you know, which is what attracts me to it. Uh, both of my books, mm. I think, are are very subversive. But but they're subversive, at least from my perspective, <clears throat> uh, motivated to alleviate unnecessary suffering. So mm. 
both, I mean, it's really the only thing that can motivate me to do the work necessary to write a book, right? Is, is when I feel like people are suffering because they don't know something that I know. So I can share this mm. with them in as entertaining a way as possible and their lives will be better for it. Um, I know that probably could sound very arrogant, um, but I don't feel like, I, I don't know that many things. I've only written two books. <laughs> Maybe that's the key, right? Um, I, I, so I just, I felt with the Sex at Dawn, this idea that monogamy is the natural state of our species and anyone who's uncomfortable in that state is a flawed individual or in a flawed mm. marriage is such an ugly thing to say to people. And, mm. you know, it's kind of like, you know, fashion magazines that make women feel ugly because they don't look like this woman on the cover. And then you find out, well, that nobody looks like that woman on the cover because that's been modified through digital you know, manipulation and, you know, mm. she's got, she's sucking her cheeks in and the, she's wearing a wig and it's all mm. fake, but we're mm. all comparing ourselves to this illusion that capitalism or Christianity or whatever produces in order to shame us into obedience. Uh, mm. And yeah, I fucking hate that. That that feels so evil to me. So where was the lack of shame for you in sharing this? Because it feels like you are, you know, you're kind of have through a process maybe as you were growing up or I, how did it come to be that you felt so comfortable within yourself and so comfortable within your identity that you could actually on such a huge scale release such a big book that kind of uh, celebrates uh, non-monogamy? Well, ironically, I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that my parents were in a very stable marriage uh, <laughs> forever. Uh, they met each other. Mm -hmm. My mother was in high school and my dad was in his first year of college when they met. They had me, I think my mom was 22 when I was born. Uh, my dad might have been 23. And my sister came four years later and... I was born in 1962, so, you know, this is through the 60s and the 70s, you know, when lots of marriages were breaking up because people wanted to experiment with sexuality and all this. And <clears throat> and my parents were very, like, they never um, questioned whether they wanted to be together. They, they fell in love and never stopped. Um, and that I think gave my sister and me a lot of emotional stability and, and my parents were also very loving and kind. And, you know, I had a very privileged kind of upbringing. And, um, so I think I just grew up with this feeling of like, I'm cool. You know, I don't need to impress mm. anybody. And I moved a lot as a kid too. So I didn't, I was always sort of starting over in a new, you know, not knowing people in a new school and all that. So I developed kind of a like self-sufficient emotional, you know, psychological um, dynamic. And then I traveled all through my twenties and most of my thirties lived overseas and, and backpacked all around the world. And so by the time I was in a position to write this book, I was in my mid to late 30s. I was already who I am. 
And, mm. you know, somebody tells mm. me I'm a genius or an idiot. I don't care either way. You know, I don't, mm. I don't believe either one. So I think psychologically, I was just in a position where I don't care. I don't, I didn't have a job to lose. I didn't have a reputation to lose. I was just a backpacker teaching English in Barcelona. You had a strong sense of security in yourself and that allowed the the freedom to explore these ideas and just, you know, live your life and not be too worried about other people's opinions. Yeah, I did, and I didn't have any money. I didn't have uh, any reputation. I didn't ha- and I was just a guy, you know, like so there it was all upside as far as I was concerned. I really connect with that, especially with Liam and I and sharing about being non-monogamous, you know, which has happened over the last however many years since Uh, we've moved back to Canberra. And I think it comes from that place of like, we have our family support, we have our love and support from our friends. And to us, that's the most important thing. You know, like our families, our parents know that we're non-monogamous. We have a beautiful child, you know, he, he doesn't know the ins and outs of our relationship, but we have that broader sense of support and just Um, security Mm. within ourselves to be able to talk about it. And I think it is a good place to come from. And, you know, it is a very privileged place to come from. Not everybody can share about their non-monogamy, but because, you know, we, we are in a position to, we've also decided that it just doesn't matter. Like we just want to normalize this thing and, you know, Mm. and put ourselves out there as well. So yeah, I connect with that. I was actually listening to uh, the the Theo Vaughan interview that you did uh, maybe five years ago when I was on my way to school pickup yesterday to pick up our son from school. And in that interview with him, you were sharing about some, I think there were perhaps some of your earlier non-monogamous experiences where you were dating uh, women who were married and you were having these moments with them, but then also like laying in bed afterwards with them and, and talking with them about how awesome their husbands are. And I just absolutely loved that. And <laughs> uh, I don't remember that. <laughs> oh, you don't remember sharing that? <laughs> it, it was funny watching the interview on the video because I watched it as well. And and you kind of, I think you said something, you prefaced it, uh, this kind of divulgence by saying, oh, I think I've spoken about this before. So I'm going to share this on a really, you know, big podcast. But I could see yourself kind of like filtering through the, should I say this? I'm going to say it, you know. And then it was funny watching his reaction because I felt I felt that it was almost such an honest kind of reflection from you and maybe outside of his wheelhouse that he kind of was taken aback and thinking, I don't even know how to, to grapple with the idea of Chris lying in bed with a woman and talking about the husband after they just had sex. Yeah. Theo Theo brings the the best out of me, I guess. He's he's such a sweet guy and he's so honest and vulnerable. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, that you just wanna, you know, you, you sort of wanna match him. Uh, you know, like God, mm-hmm. he shares so much of himself. Like, well, this is what I've got. I guess I might as well share it too. <laughs> Did you have any moments after that interview where you thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that? <laughs> I have moments after every interview where I think that or or, <laughs> or even my own podcast where I'm just talking to a microphone mm. alone in my room here. You know, it's mm. um, but I, I feel like, you know, getting back to, to what I was saying about the motivation for the sort of subversion of these mm. these sort of um shame shaming narratives i i agree with with what abby was just saying and i really admire that like i i think that people need to be willing to say 
look, this is how it is, and I'm not hurting anyone, and you know, I'm operating at a high ethical level here, probably a lot higher than most of the people who are judging me. Mm. So, okay, if I'm going to get blowback, I'm going to get blowback. Blowback. Let me take it for the team because there are a lot of people who are a lot more vulnerable who, you know, they have too much to lose. They, they'll get fired mm. from their job or they'll be, you know, their family will disown them. Or I, I really admire, um, you know, I've had a lot of very close friends who were gay men. And, and I think one of the reasons is that I really admire these guys. Like they have gone through mm. a hell of a lot in order to just be themselves, you know? And so I almost look at this, you know, what you guys are doing and and what I, what Casilda and I tried to do with Sex at Dawn is like, okay, we're privileged to be, you know, uh, heterosexual, you know, whatever. I mean, Casilda is not white, but I'm white, uh, you know, upper middle class, all these benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we have a coming out as well, and it takes a certain amount of courage to step up and say, look, this is how it is. This is how I am. Doesn't mean it's not an indictment of anyone else, right? Just like mm-hmm. a gay guy isn't saying everyone else should be gay. He's just saying, this is mm-hmm. how I am, right? This is me. Mm-hmm. So I feel like we all have to do that, or at least we're called toward it. And some of us are in a position where we can kind of get out in front and mm. we should, you know, in my case, I have no kids either. You know, you guys have a kid mm. that make, that introduces some vulnerability to it. But in my case, I'm virtually invulnerable. So, you know, people mm. want to say I'm a creep or whatever they want to say. I don't I don't give a shit. Do you think some of the pushback uh, for Sex at Dawn was just people misconstruing the book as this kind of advocacy for everyone has to be non-monogamous? Yeah. And, and, and non-monogamy is better. You know, and mm. it does, that's not what the book says. And so I think when I was at the Sydney Opera House, and certainly when I gave my TED talk, like I sort of um, try to always include this line where I say that, you know, there's nothing wrong with monogamy. Monogamy is like vegetarianism, right? Like I mm-hmm. have total respect for vegetarians. It can be extremely, my parents were monogamous, you know, I said like Mm. my whole psyche was sort of came out of this monogamous solid marriage. So I have total respect for that. The book is not ever arguing that there's anything wrong with monogamy. It's like vegetarianism, you know, uh, it can be ethical. It can be healthy. It can, it can be fantastic, but just because you've decided to be a vegetarian doesn't mean bacon stops smelling good. Right. So, (laughs) you know, that's the message of the book. The book is our species is not by nature monogamous. You can choose Mm. to be, and that can be a great decision. It can make total sense for you, but it's going to be hard because we evolved as sexually omnivorous, just like we evolved Mm. uh, dietetically omnivorous. Right. So you can Mm. choose not to eat certain foods. You can choose not to travel. You can choose to only listen to one kind of music. You can choose to restrict your experience or focus your experience in any way you want. But the nature of human intelligence is curiosity and 
uh, a drive to explore. So mm. if you anticipate that, I think you'll be better at monogamy and you'll be more forgiving if you slip up or your partner slips up or, I mean, some people think that if you fantasize about having sex with someone else, you're cheating. Like, <laughs> you know, like yeah. that's ridiculous. And this is something, this is a conversation that I've had with so many friends of mine who are monogamous and who are, you know, interested in non-monogamy and they're interested in the concepts. And they don't necessarily want to act on it or become non-monogamous, but actually learning about non-monogamy through books like Sex at Dawn or listening to our podcast or just conversations that we're having, they've found that, you know, just by having these conversations, it's actually made them way more in tune with their partner by just saying things like, it's okay to be attracted to other people. This is a normal thing. It's okay to have these feelings. These desires will happen. Let's talk about it. Let's figure it out. Or maybe at some point, if they've been married for a long time and there is a slip up along the way, there is an infidelity, something happens. It then becomes more about the repair and the communication and sort of working through that instead of, you know, throwing a relationship away. Like it, in these conversations with friends that I've been having, it's like they now have a new perspective. Like it's more, there's more lenience with things. Not saying that they want to go and, you know, be like Liam and I or have different, you know, partners and dive into compersion or anything like that, but just that it's actually quite freeing because it's not so yeah. rigid when you learn about right. these things. Right. And and I think, you know, if you look at uh, pornography, right, like one of the biggest money-making industries on the planet, well, obviously, why, right? That's people are interested in mm. sexual novelty. And so to to incorporate that into your own sexual connection with your partner can only be enriching. And I think mm. it does get incorporated in many cases, but in a in a negative way, right? So mm. a man who's watching cuckold porn, right, is obviously imagining his partner with someone else, but mm. it drives him crazy. It makes him angry. He eroticizes it through the pornography, but anytime another guy looks at his partner, he gets enraged because he's triggered mm. by it because it is erotic for him. And if he could just talk with his partner about like, I noticed that guy was looking at you because you're beautiful and guys look at you and they, you know, like if that could be something that they could share, that's going to strengthen their relationship so much mm. as opposed to making it this hostile, toxic energy. Um, the energy's mm. there, right? You're not going to make it disappear. It's there. So are you going to make it a threat to your relationship where the two of you are pretending it doesn't exist? Or are you going to use it to stoke the fire of your own relationship? And I heard uh, on your wonderful podcast, Tangentially Speaking, which I've I've been deep diving for, for many years now, but you was, I think you were speaking to Angela White, the Australian, uh, the famous Australian porn star, and you posed the question, I wonder whether repression is one of the main drives of sexuality. Like, does, does sexuality, with the absence of repression, is, is, it, is, it, is it as erotic? Is there as much space for it? 
so what, what what do you think about that? I don't know. What did she say? <laughs> she knows more than I do. Well, I, th- I think she said uh, if if there was an absence of repression, if no one was repressed, if there wasn't, you know, kind of this religious kind of overarching kind of framework that a lot of people are operating within, she'd be out of a job. I think so. Yeah, I think that's true. I, you know, when I was studying the sexuality of hunter gatherers doing research for Sex at Dawn, you know, I did find that in in societies that had no sexual repression, um, sexual interaction was pretty basic. You know, there's like, Mm. there's no kink, there's no uh, not even oral sex in a lot of them, um, mm. which I think is also a hygiene issue, right? Like if you never shower, mm. <laughs> you know, and you live in the Kalahari Desert or something, maybe uh, that changes things. Blowjobs are off the table. Yeah, I think so. Um, so, so there is the possibility that that it actually enhances our sexual experience. But it's hard to know, you know, it, because it's so hard to to find examples of societies that don't have some sort of uh, repression. Um, but I do think, you know, sort of merging this point with what we were just speaking about previously, pornography and all that, I feel like there's something very erotic about truth. So mm. I, I do feel like um, something that, uh, can you know that sort of holds for for fetishes and kink and porn and all this? I feel like people are looking for truth about what turns them on, um, mm. and I think the reason it turns them on is probably because it's forbidden in some way, you know. Mm. And if if it weren't forbidden, then yeah, it wouldn't have that kind of erotic impo- Im- impact. I often talk with Liam about the forbidden and having something that I'm, you know, breaking out from. And for a long time, you know, when Liam and I first started opening up, I felt like, you know, we're having this little secret against society. You know, we're not, we're not cheating on each other. We're fully consensual, everything, you know, we're fully across everything together. But there was something in me that has just loved doing the wrong thing. You know, it's like I'm, you know, we have this open relationship. This is not how we're meant to be doing it. And, you know, that was like a really fun obstacle to sort of work around, which really has fueled the desire. And I often think about with the with the mass sort of, you know, normalization or non-monogamy and polyamory becoming way more at the forefront with the cultural change. You know, there's Mm. that part of me that's still like, oh, but I still want it to be a little bit wrong because, (laughs) you know, then I'm, I'm going against what I'm meant to be doing, you know, (laughs) and I'm on, and I'm on the, I'm on the train to help, you know, normalize this situation. But yeah, it is something funny that Liam and I talk about because, you know, it's fun to have it be a little bit of yeah. A lot of gay couples have have confronted that right with the legalization of gay marriage. You know, mm. a lot of them are like, "Well, wait a minute, we don't want to be normal, right? Like, we don't want to just be <laughs> like you guys. We're different. We're wild, and we're outlaws." I mean, I think one thing that's important to to mention uh, at some point in this conversation is. When we talk about non-monogamy, we're talking about it as if it were a single thing, right? Like, oh, Mm. they're monogamous, we're non-monogamous. Whereas I feel like the confusion in that is there's really one, there's really only one kind of monogamy, right? Like we all know what monogamy means. If you say that couple's monogamous, then okay. 
But if you say that couple's non-monogamous, that could mean a million different things, right? Mm. So I feel like that's something that leads to a lot of confusion among people who are saying, oh, okay, non-monogamy might appeal to me. Well, what do you mean? Like, it sounds like for you guys, it's very much something that you are doing together, at least emotionally, whether you're in the same room or not, you know, but, you know, they're swingers, they're uh, thruples, they're people who only have sex with others when they're together, they're people who go off and have mm -hmm. separate things, there are people who are open to being in love with others, and then there are people who say, no, no, I only love my partner, but I have casual sex with other people, mm -hmm. you know? There's so many ways, mm -hmm. you know, everyone who's cheating on their partner is non-monogamous, whether they admit it or not. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think that's, I'm sure you guys talk about that a lot on your podcast, but it's like, man, people get really tripped up because they think it's just, there's just this, it's only polyamory, for example. I'm mm -hmm. not polyamorous and never have been. But which is really awkward when I, you know, meet polyamorous and they say, oh, you know, you wrote the Bible of polyamory. I was like, did I? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't mean to. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. We we recently, uh, at the end of last year, we, we were on national TV. They did a segment on us and they kind of uh, portrayed, it was interesting, the way that the journalists portrayed our relationship kind of left it open to a misunderstanding that potentially only Abby was dating other men and that I mm. wasn't dating other women separately. And so people kind of filled in the blanks because the narrative wasn't all there. People just made these wild assumptions like, uh, you know, all the, the Facebook comments were just wild, but but a lot of it was like, oh, this guy is a cuckold, but they were saying it in a disparaging sense. They weren't saying like, sure. oh, this is a super, super sexy thing. <laughs> But it was, but it was, it was, it was very, it was very bizarre to watch people kind of make these like worlds around our relationship and just kind of imprint their own kind of misunderstandings or, or lack of understanding around non-monogamy. Reading the comments was a journey. Oh, oh yeah. I'll bet. Don't, don't do it. Yeah. It's, uh, and, and, and following up on what you're saying, Liam, like, you know, any time you are a you know a public figure in any way, mm. you're open to that projection. Um, but when it's about sexuality, the projection, as I think we were saying earlier, gets so passionate, right? It's not like mm. it's not like you're a guy talking about the best power tools to build your house with and you get other carpenters saying, no, Makita's better. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you're talking about something that everyone is passionately opinionated about. And yet, mm. because of the sort of sex negative culture we live in, people are incredibly ignorant about it as well. So it's a really mm. bad combination of, you know, high passion, low knowledge you end mm. up um, becoming, it gets really ugly really quickly. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I had an experience with that on Australian television as well. One of the first interviews I did when the book came out, they wanted me to be on, it was like some morning show, like Good Morning <laughs> Sydney or something. <laughs> and I was living in Spain at the time. So it was like I had to get a taxi to some TV studio at three in the morning because it was a live thing. But, you know, I these days I would be like, fuck that. No way am I doing that. But 
But in those days, I was like, TV in Australia? Hell yeah, I'll get up at three in the morning. <laughs> and uh, and it was just this horrible, like these cheesy morning mm. TV shitheads. And they had some like <laughs> Catholic priest on. So they didn't, and they didn't tell me that. So they're like, okay, you've got 30 seconds to tell us about how you and your wife, you know, cheat on each other. And then the oh, Catholic God. priest spoke for five minutes about, you know, what a sad and pathetic figure I was. And they're like, okay, oh. thank you, Dr. Ryan. And like, oh, man. Oh. And somebody sent me an email and he said, like, I just watched this thing on Australian television. Uh, I'm Australian and I want to apologize for my country. Oh, <laughs> oh that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, thank you. That's oh beautiful. Goodness. Well, we recently had a biblical scholar on our podcast which is an amazing thing. And, and what we're really interested in doing as well is like having those, those conversations around non-monogamy with people who maybe just have a completely opposite kind of way in. And of course, we have to meet each other in good faith and you know, sure. getting screamed at by a priest isn't the most fun thing in the world as you found out on national TV. But it's, <laughs> it, 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 it is interesting. And, and do you find yourself being in these situations where you're almost having to defend you know, non-monogamy to people who have wildly different belief systems? Or are you almost in this kind of like echo chamber of open-minded people and in your personal life? Oh, interesting. I, I think, um, you know, one of the things that I've learned from this experience, right, from going, you know, very quickly from being English teacher, backpacker in Barcelona to you know, my books in 28 languages and I'm speaking mm. at Sydney Opera House. Like that happened in like two years. That was like mm. huge. Um, one of the things I've, I've learned is how relaxing it is to not express an opinion and to just be like, uh, mm. I don't need to engage in this, you know? And mm. so if somebody comes to me and says, you know, I think you're wrong because blah, 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 blah. great. That's fine. Mm. I don't care. Like I've got, it's like, it's like, don't feed the trolls online. You know, like I'm not going to mm. change your mind. I don't care what you think. And also I get so much of that from people who haven't bothered to read the books. Right. So I, I'll get emails mm. from people saying, I haven't read your book, but you're wrong because blah, blah, blah. like, you really think I'm going to take time out of my day to engage mm. with you? Like, forget about it. Come on. Um, but it took time to learn that I used to respond to all the emails and, you know, assumed everybody was open to persuasion and was engaging in good faith. And, you know, and then mm. after, a, you know, I don't know, a certain amount of that, you just sort of say, okay, no, I don't have time for this. Uh, what Abby was saying earlier about how someone gave her the book at, at a certain time and she didn't read it and then she read it later, mm. you know, um, I very early on in this process gave up the idea that people should read my books. Mm. I don't mm. care if you read my books. I read it if you feel the compulsion if you feel like, I really want to read that now, right? Because mm. if Abby had forced herself to read the book, it, it wouldn't have really spoken, right? It, it wouldn't have resonated mm. because it wasn't the right time for you, right? And so I'm a big believer in the message arrives when you're ready to receive it, whenever that mm. is. And so I'm not pushing anyone to 
hear anything I have to say or read anything mm. that I have to write. And so that's you feel that that's a process that you've kind of arrived to. Does it? Do you feel that the success of the book kind of alleviates some of that pressure you might have felt before it came out? Yeah, I think I think it's a combination of the success of the book and and the time of life I was in, because I think a lot of people, you know, in their forties, people who may be in their twenties and thirties have a lot to say mature into their 40s and 50s and are much more listening and sitting back and you know I'm I'm at a place in my life now where you know people reach out to me sort of like as a mentor kind of situation right where someone will come to me and say look I've read everything you've written I've listened to all your podcasts I would love I I would really be grateful if you would give me your thoughts on this that's somebody mm. I've got time for, right? Yeah. Whereas the person who's just looking to pick a fight and, you know, argue with some author, like, I, I don't have time for that. And so, and I, and mm. I feel like even if I hadn't written a book that was um, successful, I, I would still feel that way because it's just a mm. phase of maturity. You know, I, when I was younger, I wanted to convince everyone of everything and, uh, as I got older, I realized that's a waste of time. Plus, I was full of shit, you know. <laughs> uh, recently, uh, I don't know if you uh, you read a lot of the stuff that The Atlantic puts out, but there was a, there was a recent article that came out. Um, I don't know if you managed to check it out, but the title of the article was Polyamory, the Ruling Class's Latest Fad. Yeah. Have you read this I did article? Read that. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, I was going to talk about it on my podcast. I, it's it's in one of my mm. 80 open tabs in my browser. Well, because one of the things you said earlier in our conversation was when we were talking about privilege, we were talking about how you felt a really sense of secure attachment with your parents and, and we have felt a similar thing. And the article, I guess, posits that, you know, only middle-class people and above are able to kind of luxuriate and and swim in the in the open seas of of non monogamy, but do you feel that there is a class dynamic around people able to explore non monogamy? I feel like Sex at Dawn was almost a rebuttal of that idea, and I would love to know whether that uh, particular writer had actually read Sex at Dawn. My suspicion is that he didn't. Yeah, I I don't know. I I read it when it came out, which was what two three weeks ago, or something. Um, mm. So my memory's not super sharp on it, but. I do remember at the end of the article, like like the last couple of paragraphs, the author talked about someone, I think, who was physically disabled, who mm-hmm. found a support network through non-monogamy, and it really helped that person's life because they felt like they had kind of a tribal um Mm-hmm. you know family in a way uh that came out but the rest of the article was all just you know pissing on it as a you know consumerist mm-hmm. kind of um mm-hmm. very hyper individualized selfish expression um and i felt like you know maybe the editor was like well you better slip in you know slip in a little bit of mm-hmm. uh you know on the other hand um but i think that you know, that's one of the reasons that I, I wanted to talk about how there are so many ways of being non-monogamous, right? I felt like that article mm-hmm. was kind of a straw man attack because it it postulated that, you know, Silicon Valley polyamory 
with your Google Calendar and your, you know, hyper-scheduled high-tech mm. existence is non-monogamy, which is absurd, mm-hmm. right? That's just mm. what's getting attention from those that segment of society that writes and reads The Atlantic. Um, but, you know, the... Uh, in fact, lower classes um, are traditionally more non-monogamous because they don't have the concern with property rights, right? Mm. So like so many other things, like Victorian England, I remember writing about this, how our understanding of Victorian England is this like very prim and proper and, you know, highly uh, repressive of sexuality applied to like, you know, from 20% to 80% uh, class in terms of class, but below the lower classes did whatever they wanted because they didn't have anything mm-hmm. to lose. And the very upper classes, you know, the the Lord of the manor is sleeping with all the maids and, you know, has concubines mm-hmm. and, and not so much mm-hmm. for the women, but certainly for the men, like none of this applied, none of these rules applied to them. Um, yeah, I mean, Darwin's grandfather, who was an upper class gentleman, Erasmus Darwin, I think had three children with three different women, was totally open mm-hmm. about it. Two of the women were maids in the household and and he wrote poetry about group sex and stuff. Like he was like, I don't care, you know, I'm rich. Um, and then Darwin, who grew up with that sort of shadow hanging over him, went the other way and was like hyper mm. uptight. Um, yeah. So yesterday was Darwin's birthday, by the way. Ah, oh, there you go. Close to yours. Yeah. Yeah. Aquarians. Oh, there you go. Watch out. Watch do, out. Do, do you find, do you find yourself getting pulled into any of the current because the you know lots of people at the moment are saying and and Dan Savage has been doing lots of commentary on this about how like this is the moment for polyamory it's like kind of exploding into the cultural zeitgeist do you feel yourself getting pulled into that and kind of wanting to be part of that conversation no not really um <laughs> you know like doing this podcast is about you know that's like my gesture toward getting pulled into the conversation right <laughs> Well, we appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. I've I've been having this conversation for so long. I, I'm kind of, mm. you know, I'm kind of over it. Um mm. and, you know, I, I find it it's it's interesting and I'm happy to to speak with you know people who are interested about it, like you guys. Um, but I mm. don't feel any need to sort of place myself in the dialogue if someone wants to reach out to Mm -hmm. me i can be responsive but i'm not i I remember you know after sex at dawn came out and was very successful and i was considering whether or not to pitch another book and and i i or maybe it was after the second book i don't remember but i was talking with an editor at at simon and schuster's big publishing house and he was like you know you you can do it now's the time right everyone knows you you're in all the newspapers you're on tv you're in this and that like pitch a book let's do it let's do it and i was like yeah i don't know man i think i might just go travel for a year or two and kind of chill Mm -hmm. out and and he was like and i remember he looked at me with this kind of like incomprehension and he said don't you want to be part of the national dialogue and Mm. i was like no 
No, mm. I want to go sit on mm. an island in Thailand for the next six months. You know, <laughs> like be part of the national dialogue. No, fuck that. Mm. Um, yeah. So the problem is that this stuff I write about, you know, the hunter gatherers and the lack of ambition and the egalitarianism mm. and the just relax and enjoy your life thing. I believe that that's actually how I live. Mm. So I don't mm. feel a lot of, I don't really feel any compunction to go out and write another book and make more money and get on TV and, you know, go back and do another Ted talk and like, ah, no, I've been there. It's really not worth the trouble. Most of it. One of the things that I enjoy about, uh, non-monogamy and exploring non-monogamy has been how it's, um, you know, opened me up to other conversations about different topics as well. You know, as you're saying, it's not not everything has to be focused about non-monogamy. But, you know, for me, it's like the Venn diagram. I'm really interested in like the Venn diagram of people who will practice non-monogamy and their other interests. Mm. And I've noticed that there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of sort of awakening uh, in the world of psychedelics and, you know, MDMA and the sort of connection as well with non-monogamy and that space. And, you know, I, I know some people who have, you know, started exploring psychedelics and through doing that, you know, other structures are starting to uh, break down around them and they're sort of being more open to, uh, you know, non-monogamous mindset, whereas before they hadn't necessarily been thinking that way. So I'm sort of interested in your thoughts around that. Have you, you know, you know a lot of non-monogamous people, I'm sure, and, uh, you know, are across a range of things. And I'm interested, have you noticed much of a connection between psychedelics and non-monogamy? Yeah, certainly in my own experience, um, you know, before I I got into this research into human sexuality and prehistory um my primary interest was psychedelics and mm -hmm. i wrote a lot i had a column in a spanish magazine where i wrote about um pioneers in the psychedelic movement and i i was i was invited to the first um ecstasy conference in 1999 in israel at the the um, dead sea hyatt hotel um where i met sasha shulgin who invented mdma and you know all these famous researchers i was invited to um um the the hundredth birthday party of the man who invented lsd uh you know so well, i was i wow. knew all those people that was kind of like my my main focus um, and then I got into the sexuality and, and I do feel that there's a lot of overlap, right? Because they're both, um, subversive, right? They're, they're, they're both areas mm -hmm. where you're looking at this dominant paradigm and saying, you know, this is the accepted, uh, understanding of reality, but is it really reality? Right. And, and I think psychedelics encourages you to sort of look a little more deeply into things and realize things are more arbitrary than they may seem. Um, and I think on the other hand, I think psychedelics and, and this sort of, um, you know, challenging the dominant narrative of sexuality are also dangerous in similar ways um, because mm -hmm. And this gets back to to what Liam was talking about with that article in The Atlantic. 
I think they both have the danger of fueling a narcissistic um, ego expansion, right? Mm. Uh, where someone who who goes to Peru and and does ayahuasca a few times comes back to Santa Monica and tells everyone they're a shaman and starts charging lots mm-hmm. of money to guide mm-hmm. you on your journey and like it just it's especially I feel like the American mindset combines with these things in a way that mm-hmm. can be very pernicious um you know because we turn everything into a fucking product and we you know mm. next thing you know there's a website and a copyright and you know the, it turns into <laughs> some a, kind of a fucking, pyramid scheme oh my god i was gonna say passive income but it's the same thing you know <laughs> tim ferris gets his hands on it and the next thing you know it's you know the five-hour, you know, millionaire ayahuascaro course being taught <laughs> online. I remember I was talking oh, yes. with this, a Spanish friend of mine years ago, uh, Dr. Rubio, and uh, I was teaching him English. He was an oncologist. And, and, yeah. And anyway, we were talking about the difference between Spanish culture and American culture. And he said, he said, Chris, the thing about American culture is you have no sense of the ridiculous. And I said, what do you mean? Beautiful. He's like, wow. yeah, he's like, you guys, you're just free to do anything, no matter how ridiculous it is. Here in Spain, like we know, like don't do something ridiculous and we know what's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Like we know how to be Spanish, but you guys just make it up as you go along. And I remember <laughs> at the time George Bush was president, the younger one, and they were invading Iraq and doing all this stuff. And and he was like, you know, George Bush could never be the president of Spain. Like, he's too ridiculous. He's, mm-hmm. he's ridiculous. But he said, but also there couldn't, Jimi Hendrix could not have been Spanish, right? He could only be American. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, so anyway, yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that. But I, I do think uh, there is a lot of overlap between psychedelics and challenging the dominant paradigm of sexuality. I found, interestingly... When Sex of Dawn came out, I got invited to give talks a lot. You know, people would get together and raise money and fly me to Vancouver or Seattle or whatever to give a talk. And I found that a lot of this, uh, a lot of these groups were people in in tech, um, you know, mm. and, and what I saw was that in technology, in high tech, and also, by the way, Silicon Valley and psychedelics, uh, mm. there's a real strong argument that Silicon Valley wouldn't exist without psychedelics. Mm. You know, that the whole Apple, I mean, Steve Jobs took acid famously, you know, and a lot of these people mm. sort of had their consciousness expanded by psychedelics before they started inventing things and thinking mm-hmm. about, you know, the future of technology. Um, but I did find that there were a lot of people who were interested in sort of hacking their relationships, mm. who were hacking other things, right? They were they were thinking outside the box in terms of how to work, how to play, how to eat, how to exercise. And so it's just a natural progression, like, hey, let's rethink relationships. Let's sort of, you know, take this back mm. to basic principles, right? What is a relationship? Let's start from there, from the ground up. 
and ignore all this cultural overlay that's accumulated over the past several hundred years and, uh, you know, and try to redesign this from the beginning. Um, mm. Yeah. And now having said that, I think, I think there are really interesting sort of, um, you know, entanglements in terms of psychedelics and technology and relationship innovation. Um, but I also think it's interesting that a lot of these people were probably on the spectrum in terms of Asperger's autism, mm. which typically results in high intelligence, but maybe a lower emotional um, resonance with the culture in such a way that for them, maybe jealousy and insecurity weren't as strong an issue as they would have been for other people. You know mm. what I mean? So it's like if someone mm. who's super left brain rational looks at a relationship and says, well, of course, why should she only be with me? I, I'm not, you know, I don't provide everything. Mm. Blah, blah, blah. Of course, she's going to see other men. Of course, you know, that makes total sense. Mm. Like, let's do it. Mm. Right. There's not that emotional like, ah, what if she leaves me? You know, there's <laughs> not that kind of freak out factor with the advent of, of you know this kind of uh increased visibility for psychedelics and and now i guess um non-monogamy coming to the forefront as well i know you wrote that incredible book civilized to death and i'm interested in your kind of your thoughts about where we're going in terms of the future do you feel like we're almost separating into this kind of like hyper capitalist you know, futuristic Apple Vision Pro, everyone's going to have, you know, porn at their fingertips and, you know, all these kind of strange sex robots. And then there's going to be this kind of opposite end of the spectrum, which potentially maybe you see yourself on, you know, you have this incredible lifestyle where you love traveling and you love meeting people and your podcast is centered around having these beautiful conversations with with a really diverse range of people. But where do you think we're, we're heading? If you were to put you know, uh, if you were to, to kind of posit some guesses. I think we're circling the drain, uh, which is why everything goes faster and faster. I feel mm -hmm. like, uh, and I and I think there is a, a, a split. There's a fork in the road. I don't know how far up the road it is, but I do feel like there is a fork in the road. And I, and I think we will diverge, you know, we're already diverging, like economically, the, the top 1% is further away from the bottom 1% than has, you know, ever in the history of Western capitalism or, or before capitalism, even in feudalism. But, um, you know, more people live alone than have ever lived alone before. So the, I, I just feel like they're there is this sort of fracturing and, and separating going on. Um, but I think in reaction to that, there are groups of people who see what's happening and feel what's happening and are intentionally moving against that. And so it might be people who are saying, well, wait a minute, why do we all have to live alone? Couldn't we just buy a big house with our friends and share it and mm. share the car mm. and share the washer and spend less money and have more time to garden and have chickens? Like, mm. why do we need to do this? Right? Like because of these subversive messages that are coming through partly through psychedelics and, and I think in 
people who are looking at alternatives to standard relationship structures and family structures and and questioning like yeah okay what is the value of of getting in debt and having a mortgage and you know like that this i you know it's the it's the cliche right that that uh, a crisis is an opportunity. And so I feel like some people are just going to be swept along with the crisis and other people are saying, no, this is an opportunity to redesign things. There's freedom when the the dominant cultural power structures start to um, collapse. There's freedom in that. We can get away with mm-hmm. things we couldn't have gotten away with 20, 30 years ago. Um, so... Yeah, I I feel like there is a split. I I think part of it is technological, as you say. I think, you know, people are being um, victimized by technology. There's a great book called uh, 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts or something like that by Mm. one of the founders of social media, like one of the very Mm. first, you know, Jared, I forget his last name. Um, he's like got dreadlocks. He's, he's a freaky dude. Um, but you know, he's one of the inventors of this and he's like, this shit is evil, man. This is not neutral, Mm. right? This argument Mm. that social media is neutral and it can be used for good or bad. Like, no, no, this is designed Mm. to suck the life out of you. This is designed Mm. to suck the time out of your life. And that's all life is, is time. Right. And, um, so I do, I feel like people are being um, victimized by this and that's creating this backlash and some of the backlash uh, is being channeled in really constructive ways. And and I think that is part of the schism that's happening, that people are stepping away from the technology, stepping away from the processed foods and the high stress, mm-hmm. you know, lifestyles and all that stuff and saying, wait a minute, because... The crisis is we know, or people your age and younger know, they're not going to have the advantages that your parents had, right? Like we can mm-hmm. see the parties coming to an end, right? This isn't, yeah. this is the stage where the the ashtrays are all full and drinks have been knocked over and, you know, there's a guy puking in the corner. That's that stage of the party yeah. is where we are, you know? So, you know, people are are having fewer kids. They're They're really rethinking their approach to life. And I think that's going to result in much higher quality of life for people who, who figure that out. Um, Mm. But I feel like it's going to be, we're in for a really rough road. I think this year in particular is going to be monumentally strange. I felt that when we recently watched the trailer for the Apple Vision Pro, as impressed as I was by the technology and you know, when I was watching it, I was seeing, you can tell whoever designed this has been taking psychedelics. It's basically stepping into that other reality. And then I was thinking about relationships. I was thinking about non-monogamy. I was thinking about how this could be a way for monogamous people to be in non-monogamy without actually being in non-monogamy, about how we might start creating our own perfect partner I was thinking about our son and the future of relationships for him and it made me want to throw my phone in the bin. I had a complete like reaction to it. It felt like the beginning of the end. I was like, I don't want to step into something where I'm 
you know, in this manufactured photo of nature, I want to be in nature. And Liam and I always, we are discussing Instagram and, you know, the benefits and the, you know, the negative effects of it and how we can sort of fit in with that. And Mm. also with the, all of the different uh, non-monogamous relationship influences as well. And well, there is that sense of like commodification of everything. And you almost need social media as like the, the place where this is all kind of uh, situated. And it's a, it's almost feels like a little bit of a necessary evil. And I, I don't know whether you would feel this with your podcast, but of course you have a, a you know, a social, an Instagram account with, uh, I don't know, 40,000, 50,000 people following. And that is a way that people who might not necessarily be able to hear your podcast is that it's actually a way for them to connect in with you and, and for you to kind of have, you know, the, the ability to, to cross, you know, country lines to, to reach people in, you know, probably really obscure parts of the world who are able to access, you know, your thoughts. But have you ever thought of just going, fuck it, I'm going totally off grid. I'm a mountain man. Like if you want to, if you want to come and see me, I'll be at this mountain at my sex at dawn <laughs> retreat. And that's the only way you're going to hear my voice. Uh, yeah, I've definitely thought about it. Uh, but the truth is that I really like talking with people. I, and I, especially Mm -hmm. people who aren't famous, who, who don't think they're very interesting, but they are. Mm. And, Mm. um, you know, sort of seducing that out of them is so gratifying. And, you know, Mm. I just feel like it's what I was born to do in, in some ways. Mm. Um, and the fact that, however many people listen to it around the world. And at this point, you know, I don't think my audience is growing. Uh, I think it's, it plateaued years ago and people who are listening now are like, they've been there for a long time and they know what they're getting and they dig it. And it really feels like a community. And Mm. so um, every time I think about, walking away from it or even if i mention it on the podcast like i've been doing this 12 years or 13 or whatever mm. it is now and you know i'll just get emails from people and and the the you know the strangeness of it is that it's so it's so effortless on mm our side right like you guys are in your house right you're you're yeah. you just walk yeah. you know your bathroom is five <laughs> steps away it's and yet you just sit down and you do this and then you press a few buttons and there mm. are people in iran who listen to my podcast like you know because mm. i encourage people to go to Substack, and you know but i always say like mm-hmm. if you can't afford five bucks a month and you want the bonus material let me know and I get these emails from people in Iran saying, yeah, we can't use credit cards because we're in Iran. And so we're not part of the banking, international banking system. Like people in fucking Iran are listening to me sitting here at my desk and I am wearing sweatpants that I haven't changed in three days. Like what is going on? This is such a strange world, you know? So yeah, there are definitely upsides to the technology. I think podcasting mm. is is mm. one of them and you're right the whole mm. social media thing that's a way to get the word out or for people to find you um but honestly i don't i don't even really do social media uh mm. 
Mm-hmm. My partner does that. You know, she's 35, mm-hmm. so she knows she she just does it with her thumbs and it all works. And so I let her handle mm-hmm. the the Instagram anyway. Um yeah, but you're right. There's it's a double-edged sword. Mm. Yeah, it is such an incredible gift though for you to be able to give to the world. I know you you kind of said before, oh, I've, you know, I've, I've written two books, which are incredible books, but I feel like every podcast episode is is such a is such a world within and of itself. I I recently listened to the Amanda Knox podcast and I was really mm-hmm. taken aback by that one, particularly because I and I love Sam Harris and I'm I'm a a, a big I've been following him for a long time, but I, I listened to his interview with Amanda first, um, and then I listened to yours kind of maybe a week or so afterwards, but I was so taken aback by the difference in tone of the interview and the way in which you were able to so beautifully connect with her on such a human level, kind of immediately out of the gate. I think you start talking about her children's names, and there's this, there's this immediate levity to the whole conversation that is just so beautiful to for for me to like in Australia, you know, going for a walk on the track to be able mm. to tap into that. It's just astonishing. Yeah. She's cool. I, I, I really enjoyed that conversation with her. Um, as opposed to Sam Harris, who I don't think I would enjoy having a conversation with honestly, because, mm. and, and, you know, not to piss on Sam Harris or anything, but the thing I love about, about, connecting with people is their their fallibility and their humor and their mm. their mm. willingness to talk about mistakes and you know j- just like the the sort of how how crazy and unpredictable and interesting life is and mm. um every time i listen to sam harris i feel like he just he filters all that out he's he's just so right about everything and you know if mm. someone disagrees it's cuz they don't understand his con- his his argument or they don't understand the issue and i don't really like mm. talking with people like that i like talking with people who who we all come to learn you know and mm. um i i used to hitchhike a lot and i think for me the podcast is very much like hitchhiking it's like mm. you know somebody you're standing in the rain and somebody <laughs> stops and they're taking a risk inviting you into their car and you get into the car and you are already grateful, right? This person's taking a risk. I'm out of the rain. I'm going in the direction I need to be going. I'm already starting from a position of respect and gratitude. And, Mm. you know, and that's what makes a conversation really flow. I think where, where it's a gift for all of us, you know, we're all really happy to be here. So yeah, that I love doing the podcast and and I do think about stopping. I've never done anything this long. I've never been I've never done anything consistently like this, you know. Um I'm pushing 600 episodes now. Um wow. but but it's great. I really enjoy it and you know, enough people send me money that it's it's worthwhile. So it's a beautiful way to live life as though we are all hitchhikers kind of collecting stories <laughs> mm. and, and having that yeah. sense of vulnerability. And yeah, we just want to say thank you so much for, for taking the time out of your, your very special birthday. I do have one very small question about sure. something that you mentioned fleetingly before. And that was the 100th birthday party of, of the, did you say the person who had created LSD? Yeah. How was that yeah. party? Um, Hoffman, <laughs> Albert Hoffman. Oh, uh, well, 
here's the thing. I was invited, but I didn't go. Oh. <laughs> Surely yeah. that's got to be a, reg- a big regret. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, here's how it went down. He he lived in Sw- in Switzerland, and I was living in Barcelona. And my um, friend and sort of mentor in graduate school is a guy named Stanley Krippner. And he knew Albert Hoffman um, from back mm-hmm. in the day. Stanley was sort of a pioneer of the psychedelic psychology world. Like he knew, he knew Aldous Huxley. He actually took LSD with Timothy Leary at Harvard as part of his experiment that he was running there. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you know Stan Groff and like he, he um, uh, what was his name? John Lilly, the guy who invented sensory deprivation tanks, you know, and the whole float tank mm. thing. Um, yeah, he knew all these these early pioneers. And uh, so Stanley was going to go to the party and Stanley said, hey, if you'd like to go to this party, you know, I can, you can be my plus one. And I was like, fuck yeah, are you kidding me? Come on. <laughs> uh, and um, But then I, I was in a new relationship with Casilda, the woman I eventually wrote Sex at Dawn with. And she had a daughter who lived with her father in Africa. Her daughter was like 12 or 13, I think. And she was going to come and visit us in Barcelona. And it was the first visit since we'd moved in together Mm. so it was a big deal you know and for me to just be like hey nice to see you kid i'm off to switzerland uh that wasn't working and so uh i stayed and and hung out with her and i have no regrets but yeah that that was a tough party to say no to well um in terms of how our listeners are able to find out about uh all the things that you're offering in terms of your podcast would you like to give uh, so plugs, I know you've got this incredible retreat coming up as well. No, they just have to come to the mountain I'm on in Colorado. <laughs> That's the only way to access my wisdom. Uh, Amazing. Yeah. No, uh, I guess the easiest way to find me is uh, chrisryan.substack.com. That's where the mm-hmm. podcast is and things I write. Um I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram as that Chris Ryan. Um, so yeah, they can find me there. I'm around. Just Google me. I'll pop up. There's another guy named Chris Ryan who writes books about military yeah. stuff. That's <laughs> not me. <laughs> not me. I'm that Chris Ryan, not the other Chris Ryan. Oh, well, thank you so much for this conversation today. It's been so interesting and we're going to be talking for days about this. Yeah, and we'll come find you on that mountaintop, Chris. We will. You guys should come to Montana. Yeah, that would be that that's a wonderful retreat. It's it's with uh, Cameron and Melaine Shane. Cameron I've had Cameron on my podcast. He's a real character. He used to be Charlie Sheen's bodyguard. Talk about a weird oh, wow. a weird job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He'd fly around trying to keep Charlie Sheen out of trouble. Uh, he taught movement to like the entire cast of friends, you know, like Jennifer Aniston and all these people. And yeah, he's a, he's a hilarious guy. He's got like four or five black belts and all these different martial arts. And, uh, he's, he's a awesome dude. Anyway, he and his, uh, wife have this retreat center in Montana and Anya and I go up there, uh, once a year and the four of us do a thing together, kind of combining, 
discussions of sexuality and relationship and alternative lifestyle with movement and martial arts. And so it's a, mm. you know, whole mind body merge kind of thing. And uh, that's been a lot of fun. So, yeah, you can find out more about that on my website or just drop me an email. Incredible. Thank you so much, Chris. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed chatting with you guys. Thank you for listening to the Evolving Love podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, we invite you to become a premium subscriber at evolvingloveproject.substack.com. Premium subscribers unlock two extra podcast episodes each month, the full archive of my writing, and our endless gratitude for supporting all that we do at the Evolving Love Project.